The first temptation is to say that tradition has abandoned WrestleMania. That this grand spectacle, this enticing blend of celebrity and athleticism, has been taken hostage by a new generation of rogues. The baddest man on the planet, the toughest SOB, the reigning champion and number one degenerate. These are men determined to write their own destiny. To hell with historians who will pen their tale. But tradition is indeed alive and well. Because after all, despite the brash bravado, it's the allure of World Wrestling Federation gold that has brought these men here tonight. The very belt that has immortalized Andre, Hulk, and San Martino. The symbol of excellence that has inspired Gorilla Monsoon, the big cat Ernie Ladd, classy Freddie Blassie. A lineage created by Vincent J. McMahon some 50 years ago. So tonight, through sacrifice and pain, through breathtaking displays of athleticism that define mortal boundaries, these men that shun tradition are destined to become part of it. It's WrestleMania, the grandest of spectacles, the showcase of the immortals. A time to revel in the occasion. And somewhere beyond the spotlights, the father of the World Wrestling Federation will revel in it too. And now, WrestleMania. So after Undertaker versus Kane, we do then get the brilliant, the brilliant advert for the Attitude Era. The I can still hear the echoes chanting my name with classy Freddie Blassie, Ernie Ladd, uh, Gorilla Monsoon and others. Just spectacular, just wonderful. Like really kind of this was they played this every episode of Raw at the time. And it was just one of those things you're like looking back now, you're like, wow, that ch chills, sends chills. Yeah, it's just really, chills. really great stuff. And again, going back to the thing we were talking about last time having to use these guys because the guys from the previous generation are all in WCW so they've had to go back beyond that to the, the generation before and, and rely on them to big up the legacy of this company and the history that it's got it's a depressing thought if they did this advert today all of the people would be people that we grew up watching wouldn't it <laughs> yeah, yes, it would. yeah and also people who wrestled maybe a year ago yeah, you know yeah. whereas at least these guys have long since retired yeah I didn't like it <laughs> Um, oh, you got no. no romance in your soul, Matt. You got no oh, romance no. at all. Do you know, for me, it kind of it, it reminded me of what I think is and has always been one of wrestling's and the wrestlers themselves. They're just their biggest. They're some of the most insecure people walking the earth. You know, when, when they talk about you know back when men were men, and they, honestly, they, I just oh, it really does grate me because I just do think sometimes you, especially with a lot of the, the, the quote old timers, you, you do hear that where you think oh, you know, they're not as manly as they used to and I hate it they just wrestlers really do come across as some of the most insecure people in the world sometimes and this was just another example I think you take them all wrong I think what they're saying is we weren't as good as these guys I think that's what they're saying during this yeah during this that's program. why I took this one I, yeah. I, I get I get what you're saying Matt and I don't like that at all Undertaker's a big proponent of that we used to have yeah. guns and stuff in the locker room yeah that's um, true did you uh, but yeah I, I, I think they were saying exactly what you said Ben the, we, we did our best but these guys are so much better 
than us and we cheer for them now and I thought yeah this is this is phenomenal I think you've taken it the wrong way Matt I don't I don't think that's what they were saying they're saying you know I never jumped off the top rope because I couldn't yeah basically yeah. that's what they're saying yeah I, I think that's the, the the romantic side of you and the, the biased part of the well, time myself but there maybe, we go <laughs> maybe that's true but it must be a cold world without the romance and <laughs> that you've got no romance in your heart at all Matt you've got no romance in your soul <laughs> we'll, we'll get there well, I, I can't remember you know there, there was the don't try this at home advert around about like 2001 2002 we'll get there eventually when i see it i'll be like i like that one who will like that desire? oh yeah the desire videos were insanely good oh god they were so good but, but who liked the don't try this at home videos what the, <laughs> the, the, the video that the teachers and the parents liked fucking oh, hell i, I love it because <laughs> it made me laugh every get, time get some soul get some soul into your body <laughs> oh, what is wrong with you Hello and welcome once more to the Random Wrestling Review. I'm Ben Spindler and today our WrestleMania series hits the night that confirms Stone Cold Steve Austin at the very top of the wrestling industry. WrestleMania 14 is also a major line in the sand for this podcast as well as today we're bringing you our 100th episode. Well, 100th main episode. We've done a number of bonus episodes which have taken us over the century some time ago. But this is officially the 100th edition and joining me today to mark this occasion is first of all matt roberts matt how are you doing i'm good i'm, I'm trying not to speak well it's the worst thing in the world to try and not speak on a podcast but hey i have a cold i'm gonna try my best but other than that hey happy 100 people we are the walking wounded because i also have a cold today so it's going to be a whole lot of silence and steven occasionally piping up and that brings me to steven because he is also on the show with us today hello i do not have a cold i have a mild hangover uh but i'm not i do not have a cold so i'm having a lovely day if i'm honest so yeah i'm, I'm very pleased to be here on uh Episode 100. Wow. Congratulations, Ben. And uh, Tom, old man, all of you. I forgot to blank them for a moment in terms of the other co-hosts. I was hoping you were just going to say, and those other guys. Yeah, and those other guys, yeah. So you've got a mild ha- hangover. Is that a hangover that is mild or a hangover that's been brought upon because you were drinking mild? Uh, a... The, right. The sport. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Matt, you'll notice I didn't in my intro call you the polar bear today, and that's because I think going forward you are no longer going to be the dissenting voice on the podcast because this is now entering into the territory that you think you're going to be much more comfortable with. Whilst I think for others it's going to mark a time when we're a little bit less comfortable with what's on the screen. So I think you may very well have to transfer over that polar bear energy to some other people that appear on this podcast i won't name names but there's only four of us who regularly do so you can have to pick your take your pick between the rest of the other three of us that's fair i, I need a new gimmick we'll, we'll, we'll have to find one well we i tell you what noises did we matt there was no noises at the start of the thing here which is i feel like we've let ourselves down we? Uh. <laughs> matt, i think matt's face suggested that you'd let yourself down doing the noises yes. in the first place. i've got that loud and clear and we'll never speak of it again talking of changing gimmicks i think it's time it, it, this is a strange segue but i think it's time for me to start talking about why seth rollins is going to be my figure of hate for 2023 because Yay. we never got to it and we aren't likely to because he's not going to appear on wrestlemanias that we're going to cover this year i don't think we might maybe at the end i can't remember exactly where the end of the year is but i thought i'd, I'd say it because actually 
changing gimmicks is my issue with Seth Rollins. Okay, so I think what's happened since Chris Jericho sort of got a reputation for being this great changer upper of of the way he pre- presents himself back in like 2008 when he became kind of a different version of himself, stripped back all the stuff from the Y2K and became kind of the straight suit laden Chris Jericho. There's this, this sort of been built up this sort of mythology around changing your gimmick really dramatically. And what's happened to Chris Jericho over the last five years in particular is he seems to change his gimmick every year, like dramatically now. And I think it's not a good thing. I don't I don't think it is a good thing. I think the initial one after sort of, I don't know, 10 years or whatever, of playing Y2J fine you know I get that that's a long period of time and he also had a break you had like a couple of years break between you know when he would been the last time he'd been Y2J and then coming back and doing something different but after that for me it's overkill he's still part of the WWE universe in terms of the story Chris Jericho was whilst he was there and he's now part of AEW's universe he shouldn't be able to and it should and it's not in my opinion good storytelling or good characterization to literally just flip your entire character out of nowhere and do it so regularly, it completely undercuts every sense of why anyone would invest in you as a emotional character. And Seth Rollins seems to have taken Chris Jericho's lead to heart and seems to want to change his gimmick every five minutes. And everyone thinks he's amazing for it. And I think it's rubbish. I think it's lazy. I think it's bad work. I think what it's meant is that Seth Rollins is an incredibly respected pro wrestler as a in-ring performer. No one gives a fuck about him. I don't know anybody who would care about a Seth Rollins match emotionally or invest in his matches. No one gives a fuck about him. He's just a, he's just a, a good, solid hand who they turn to because, you know, he can go in the ring and they haven't got a huge amount of those in WWE in terms of the very high level uh, pro wrestlers. But that's why the hate was coming for Seth Rollins is because I don't think that is a good thing and it's being celebrated as such. Do you know what? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I am going to have the polar bear mantle anymore because um, I, I pretty much completely agree with that. I, I think in large part, the problem with Seth Rollins is that I, I don't think if you were to ask him in his heart of hearts, even he knows what his current character is. <laughs> and, and I think that's been a problem with him for, for years now. Like, who is Seth Rollins? What's his motivation? What's he all about? Other than being called, you know, calling himself a visionary, having an evil, maniacal laugh, and now apparently getting the, the crowd, you know, to chat the, whoa, whoa, you know, crap uh, along to his theme song. Who is he? You know, is you know, he, he dresses really over the top and flashy. Okay, cool. All right. That, that makes you stick up. But, but why does he dress like that? No, nobody knows other than to, you know, to not look like everybody else. And I think that's his problem. Yeah, okay, he's a great worker, and that's that's brilliant. But yeah, again, I asked the question: Who is he? I don't think anybody knows. No, I think with Seth, they bodged him really badly twice. And the first one was when he came back after his knee injury. He should have been a, a face, and there was a massive reaction. I think he did he not pin Roman Reigns? I think, and then Ambrose cashed in on him. I can't remember what year that was. Twenty seventeen, maybe twenty seventeen or twenty sixteen. One of the two. But yes, and, and then the one I think was even worse was when he won the title from Lesnar at WrestleMania thirty five. And I genuinely think, and babyface is such a hard thing to come by. Um, because they have to be protected. And, and once the crowd's with someone, obviously you guys talked about the Sami Zayn thing, like the crowd was with him and you've got to protect that because it's so hard to get to. After he beat Lesnar at 35, the two things that killed him, they, they put him in storyline with Becky Lynch. No one wants to see that. Like No one wanted to see that. And the thing that absolutely no one wanted to see was him being scared of Bray Wyatt and all that terrible nonsense. And Wyatt just killed him, absolutely killed him. And now I do agree that his character is 
very wishy-washy and it's almost like he's playing a I think he said this actually this is not him is it he wouldn't be out wearing outlandish things which I'm not completely you know it doesn't have to be all about you know realism and all this sort of stuff the thing I'd say is I do think the crowd is somewhat with him and I do think that I am interested in him and Logan Paul at WrestleMania um because I think Logan Paul has a has something you know I don't I don't I can't quite quantify that whether it's natural charisma or it's a bit like you know driving past a car crash you just want to look don't you I think both the Paul brothers have that so yeah I, I don't know I think it's taken him a long time to be re- rehabilitated and he's probably back in a in a better spot than he's been for a long time but there's not, nothing too genuine about you know his act at the level he's in really I think that's the that's it that the the sense that the, the audience thinks of him as someone genuine when he does his act is is lost because he hasn't changed so much and you just lose it all. I don't really care if his character is Rushy. I do care, but we'll put it this way. I'd still be as bothered if his character was very clear at this point mm. because he's changed it so much. And that's my bigger problem is that you can't, again, go back to Bret Hart and wrestlers of that era. Bret Hart was the same character his entire WWE run, effectively. You would you could argue it was a bit wishy-washy, but ultimately he was a good guy, hardworking, who got his head down, and tried to win matches and and then represented whatever title he had at whatever time in the best way he could. And his goal was always the world championship. Basic, mm. simple, but it worked and it worked really well. Brett wouldn't have worked anywhere near as well if after two years he turned heel and become this really cocky, arrogant heel. After another two years, he then turned babyface and been this kind of zany kind of character. And then after another two years, had done something else. It just it doesn't breed an emotional attachment to an individual. And that's where, for me, Seth Rollins has got it all wrong. And Jericho, I think, is just doing it because basically he's got to the point where his in-ring work, though still still decent, doesn't hold up to his previous his previous ability so he, the only thing he can do is keep distracting people with another new gimmick and another new gimmick but Rollins has still got it and Rollins, Rollins shouldn't be in a position where he's relying on that he should be able to you know take a take a gimmick whatever gimmick it was many many years ago and just see it through because he has at various times had kind of the investment of the crowd whether as a baby face or a heel just just run with it and don't don't feel the need that you have to change it up every every year because that's what it feels like he's doing. Yeah, I do hope. I feel like in a parallel universe, I hope that Zayn Bret Hart is a thing, and that he's still <laughs> the, that Starcade '99 didn't happen, that kick didn't happen. He's still smashing out four star classics, dances his way down to the ring, and like there's some sort of electro pop version of his theme tune. It'd be incredible. Yeah, so maybe maybe in years to come, we'll find some way of communicating with that Bret Hart. Oh, maybe maybe that maybe that will be the outcome of all of this. AI stuff is that they can predict accurately alternative universes and what would have happened over like yeah. 20 years. Oh, that would be amazing. Well, I'll tell you what, in a, in a little bit of time, we will dip into the what if section for WrestleMania 14. So let's get back to WrestleMania 14, though, for the time being and our expectations. In fact, before expectations, I'm going to give a quick plug to, first of all, RWR Pod UK on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. I was going to say Facegram and Instabook for a second. <laughs> Maybe someone wants to come up with that to take it away from from Moss's face, old Zuckerberg, because, you know, he's obviously another dickhead. <laughs> and also a plug for Stephen's Pro W Moments podcast. Ooh which we don't do enough of. And Stephen obviously you know, appears on the show every month at least. And to be honest, it's my way of keeping up with AEW, which is magnificent. And then in the post-WrestleMania world, it'll be my way of keeping up with WWE as well, I think, because I don't I don't watch enough of it. And it's just a lovely way for me to do that. In particular, I'm thinking about the AEW Revolution um, review that was done, which would be a couple of weeks ago now, because it was a very decent one-hour listen. Stephen and Dan did it in person, which was a, which was a great... Did 
experience. I really Marcus enjoyed in that. Ireland. Dan got yeah. through seven Morettis during the course of the Recording 2 podcast. I did a Bud Light and a half, I think. So, yeah, you can <laughs> tell he's got the drink problem between us. He probably yeah. is listening to that. Only, only joking, Dan, if you're listening. He will be. <laughs> um, so, yeah, give it a look. Give it a listen because it, it's, it's really decent. As I say, it is a good way of keeping up with uh, what's going on in the uh, in the world of wrestling today, which I'm not good at in general. Expectations for WrestleMania 14. Um, seeing as we've just put you over big, let's go with you, Stephen. What were your expectations for this? I was, I, I was looking forward to watching this because this is... You know, I, th- I think I, there's probably not too many times I was more obsessed with wrestling than this point in time. This is my GCSE year at school. I just was so, you know, Steve Austin, all the all this good stuff. So I was really excited about watching this again. Cause I, I can't recall watching the full event for years and years, maybe 20 years, I don't think. I've watched the Michaels and, and Austin match quite a few times afterwards. But yeah, I was pretty pumped to go back and, and watch this one. It's certainly on the list that I'm on one of the ones that sort of jumped out at me and I'm actually yeah I'm quite excited about this no that, that's good news Stephen because I did I have felt your pain you've you've complained a couple of times about getting a lot of shit stuff especially in regards to the way Brett's been booked on the shows mm. that you've seen so I'm glad there was one you're actually looking forward to watching that is uh that is good news Matt what about you um I was also looking forward to this one um the uh, the the Steve Austin uh, Shawn Michaels match is one that, that I've never seen I heard clips about it I mean I've, I've seen clips of the finish. I mean, God, it's been in how many video packages, you know? So I've definitely seen clips of the finish. Um, but because of that, I mean, t- to be honest, the, the rest of the show was almost irrelevant for me. I just, I really wanted to see that. So m- my hopes were quite uh, were quite high for this one. See, now that I'm confused, Matt, because I thought you'd seen all the WrestleManias from 13 onwards. So are you saying you hadn't seen WrestleMania 14? No, no, um, I, no, definitely haven't seen this one. Okay, well, not we not found another full, new one. Not in full, anyway. Okay, fair enough. Well, that's 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 good. That's another good uh, that's another good thing for for me in terms of my expectations. Yeah, I, I was re- I was looking forward to this, but also wary of it. I I remember there being a general sense at the time this was actually a really good show, and then over time people perhaps reassessing the quality of it and not being quite so high on it. So I, you know I can remember I can even remember for example the Power Slam review of it and it being quite a positive on the whole review, and then over time when that even you know Finn Martin and and people who worked for the magazine revisited it the, there was a slightly less positive angle on it not that it was incredibly negative but just not quite as positive as it kind of got received at the time so interesting to see if that kind of continues with this review okay talking points now i've got one but i'm going to hold it back because i don't think either of you will have it so i'm going to yield the floor we're going to go with you Stephen, this time first this week what's your talking point for this show oh pressure's on okay so now if it's possible Imagine a world where The Undertaker never had a streak. He, <laughs> he, he didn't have one. He absolutely didn't have one. And transport yourself to 1998. How did The Undertaker win this match? So while Kane, got, I'm sure you'll go through the match, but while Kane got his heat back afterwards, which I think is such a nonsense way to keep a heel hot, because the heel, the best way to keep a heel hot is to have the heel, heel win. I don't, I don't see the post-match attack as much of a thing, really. But yeah, I just, I just don't really get it. Like you, you've built this, this Kane storyline. I've said on the podcast before, The Undertaker's never been someone that I was massively fond of, but this Kane storyline was a big thing. And I don't understand really how you get to a place where The Undertaker wins this. Surely the longer term interest in the character of Kane is that Kane wins the first one, probably fairly decisively, and then you do a, you run it back later in the year and Undertaker wins. So that's my talking point. Now, clearly, it would have been much worse if Undertaker's career had this happened because of the streak, etc., blah, blah, blah. But you've got to put that to one side. So, yeah, how did, how did the Undertaker win this match? Well, 
how he won it was with three tombstones, Stephen, <laughs> after about 17 minutes of action. What a segue. And, what a segue. Uh, yes, the Undertaker took the victory after that. And then after the match, as you say, Kane kind of attacked the Undertaker again. After the Undertaker had knocked Paul Bearer down with a punch, the incredibly unathletic Bearer throwing mm. himself to the floor in slow motion. To answer your wider point, which I think you were making, which is why did he win the match? Why did they choose Yes, him? not how. How is not the right word there <laughs> i think it's going back to the thing that i've always felt about this and which i think perhaps maybe people who started watching wrestling later on don't don't get is that i don't think kane was ever meant to stay around for long yeah yeah i think kane was going to be a two or three match and done character and he'd be out basically the same way as pretty much all of the undertaker's characters uh, sorry opponents have been over the previous six seven years of his of his run you know like bundy and Kama and you know various people of, of that ilk the executioner was around for like a couple of months wasn't he like mm. you know, terry gordy i think played the part you know he he was not this was just the latest monster of the week it was a very big one it was a massively significant one and one that they you know had an amazing story you know genuinely one of the best built stories i think of of all time to this match ultimately Um, although some people might object to the magic that was on show at times during the feuds matt i'm thinking specifically of you although Stephen, you may also object to it but ultimately in terms of wielding a story and taking it all the way through from pretty much the previous summer right through to this great story but i do still think that they were just thinking about one match maybe the rematch and then that's probably it they were probably Mm. thinking about then jobbing him out you know for the next three to four months and then that would be the last you'd see of him now obviously we know that didn't happen and Kane became a very, very significant character over many, many years. But I think at this time, that was the where they were going with it. So that's probably why. Yeah, yeah, I see, I see that. And what a giant shame, because I, I can't believe they got this one so wrong. The, the storyline for this is absolutely amazing. The video package alone, I enjoyed enjoy the video package more than the match itself. You know, that, that, you know, showing the whole story of this, I thought was absolutely amazing. And the whole Undertaker Kane saga is, I I would put it up there as one of the best stories that wrestling has ever done. The problem that I have with it is when you really look at it, I mean, you, you know, okay, it's kind of soap opery, but you know, you, you take, you've got burned down, you know, homes, you know, you've got scarred brothers faces and all that, you know, and they were going to settle their beef with a wrestling match. And I just, for me, that this is one of the, I know it was, you know, their, their first meeting, but this is one of those where it felt like it necessitated something more. Like this should have been like a no DQ type thing. And I, I know obviously they went on to, you know, to do like Inferno matches and all that jazz later, but you know, for, for it to just be, you know, settled with, you know, headlocks and arm drags and and all that after all that they'd, you know, clearly gone through throughout their lives, it, it just felt like quite a mistake. I felt that really hurt it. Um, which was a shame because, like I said, the the, the story was was absolutely phenomenal. And I, I remember even, um, you know, when I was younger and I, I was probably out of my sort of friendship group, I was the last one uh, to, to get into pro wrestling. Loads of other of my friends liked it way before me. And, and you know, when I was younger, I remember them telling me, oh, my God, you've got to check out this Undertaker Kane thing. It's, it's the best thing. And it was awesome, apart from the match. It's interesting you mentioned head, uh, headlocks and arm drags because I'm not sure either of those two things appear in this match. But an there, interesting point. There was a door. Oh, there was a damn long chin lock. I should have said chin lock because <laughs> my lock, God, Kane would still be holding on to that thing today if take and got out of it. Undertaker went for a, a poison rana during this. Do you notice that bit? Oh, he wasn't oh. going for that. He jumps on Kane's shoulders. Electric chair what? position. Definitely, that was yeah. cringe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, I liked it. I liked it. Oh, I didn't like that. 
I do. I liked it, but I'm more appreciative of messiness, especially if it doesn't come across as a tremendous botch. I tend to find that matches involving bigger people don't come across as botches so often simply because you can understand if they actually in the course of the sporting contest made that mistake whereas you know for example if someone you know a flyer of some kind is doing something that that ultimately gets botched it's so obviously a mistake not meant to happen within the confines of the story if you see what i mean so i i tend to find it to be honest messiness in in these situations sometimes i i quite like because it almost feeds into the idea that this is an actual fight not just a choreographed dance if you like yeah i completely see that i think sometimes when um something like that happens it adds a sort of degree of realism to because a, fi- a fight is not always slick is it even in ufc like things like a slip or whatever but i'd say that wasn't my favorite thing about this match my favorite thing about this entire match was when hugo savinovich slowly fell off his chair after the undertaker <laughs> dived onto the announce table because this was classic old drunk bloke at a wedding on you've been framed falling over and he did it in slow motion it was just it was wonderful and actually i didn't think this match was terrible and the crowd loved it and i can't really give much more praise to an undertaker match from 1998 than that really hugo savinovich no doubt if tom was on the podcast or old man would be their mvp without yeah. shadow of a doubt <laughs> uh, just for that particular moment i mean this is definitely the best undertaker kane match hmm. i can't think of another undertaker match <laughs> oh, which goes anywhere God. near this <laughs> <laughs> wow I quite, I quite surprised i mean my god i mean i know they had i, I would have thought that maybe you know that the, they got you know a little bit higher than this but my god no, no this is definitely the best there's there's nothing that they, they never had good matches they didn't really have great chemistry as 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 pair of wrestlers in my view we've reviewed one of their matches from later in this year on this podcast judgment day 1998 where they have an absolute awful fucking match against each other like just generally terrible the inferno match is a great gimmick a great visual as we've discussed before with the bray wyatt inferno match that we previously reviewed but once you've got for past the visual it's just it's just two men who can't do anything because they're surrounded by fire scared to death they're going to get burned so and, and then after that they had a lot of matches on raw but they would have been three and four minutes long and not really worth it. And yeah, this is this is the best. I mean, it's not a bad match. I think it's a good match, personally. It's it's not a great match by any means, but I think it's a good match. I think they do pretty well. And um, the fans are into it, and understandably so. This has been built for such a long time. I do quite like what you said, though, Matt, about the fact that this shouldn't have been just a normal match because you've been through so much to get to this point. How does it make any sense that this is a wrestling match but then ultimately as i said before how does it make any sense that the undertaker and kane are able to direct lightning towards one another as they do in the build-up i mean they're not it doesn't make any sense you kind of just have to go with it a little bit here <laughs> why didn't either of them use that in a mat in the match itself well yeah surely you yeah, pull out the lightning wouldn't you maybe they're just uh, yeah they should have sort of addressed this before beforehand yeah. they should have said look you know gentleman's agreement no magic <laughs> A bit like Shawn Michaels and Rick Martel in uh, 92, SummerSlam, saying no punches to the face. Yeah, they yeah. agreed. No lightning shots to the arse, basically, in this uh, in this match. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know it's ridiculous, but I, I remember people responding in school to the magic and loving it. Just absolutely mm. loving it. Loving every moment of it. So, to be honest, like you, it's hard to argue with. You know, this did work. It did genuinely work. So, what can you what can you say? There's a reason I haven't really talked about it that much, to be honest, because in all fairness, for, for the time, the time that it, I, I felt like it, you know, it probably worked for that time. So, yeah, I mean, again, it, it's definitely not my cup of tea, but yeah, it, it, I have a funny feeling it probably worked for that time scale. How old were you when this show was on, Matt? Just out of interest. Oh, what year was this on? 98. 98. 
Uh, and yet, I would have been eight years old. Makes me sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Christ, that so, was the year my sister was born. <laughs> so I am the same age as WrestleMania. So effectively, I was fourteen when this this show okay. took place. Yeah. I, I think the other thing though is that this did. You said for the time, but it did stand out a little bit. You know, this was a harder edge, more, I guess you could argue, reality-based style that WWE were now kind of trying to put over. But it was it was over the top as well. So, you know, you could... It was kind of Jerry Springer wrestling, if you like. Oh, 100%. And there's, a, there's, a, there's something later on. I think it's a Mero, not to jump ahead, but the tone of the video packages is a Maury Povich particularly Jerry Springer's Maury Povich was slightly toned down Jerry Springer was more oh, crikey I'm trying to think of a good example you know my wife slept with my eight cousins whereas Maury Povich was a was a bit less so but kind yeah. of halfway but that was what the tone of the the backstage stuff in terms of the video package that was you know Michael Cole relatively seriously saying you know and that it just it could have been lifted out of that of that sort of that sort of environment yeah, and, and Jerry Springer occasionally, I've, from a memory, did things like I was abducted by aliens type yes. things. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this kind of fit that as yeah. well in that respect, because yeah. here's these two brothers that are, one of them is supposed to be dead before we even start this story. And the other one has been killed, apparently, in a fire. So, yeah, it's all a bit mad, it's all a bit stupid. But, you know, I guess that's how it fitted this kind of more reality-based style, was that it kind of fit in that. Um, I've a written... tangent for you, Ben, I, and on. Matt. I actually went to see a taping of Jerry Springer when I went to see uh, WrestleMania 22 in Chicago, and Jerry Springer did not turn up for the show, so Bodyguard Steve had to present it, which was devastating. So, because <laughs> one of our, one of our, we were pretty lazy in our early 20s. We used to go to, like, Houston or wherever WrestleMania was, or Toronto, and we do no sightseeing whatsoever we'd literally houston we stayed on the edge of a freeway and we ate in wendy's every day for, for didn't have breakfast we didn't get up early enough for lunch and dinner um, and then just watch tv all day i think the day of wrestlemania 17 we watched about an eight hour medical medical i can't even say it an what? eight hour eight hour medical detectives marathon on like a and e or whatever and then went to the astrodome but one of the things we always do is we wake up and they'd have Jerry Springer, Maury Povich, Jerry Springer, Maury Povich, Povich, back to back. So that's what we did in our 20s, Matt. When we got a bit older, so actually our first WrestleMania was 19 and 18. So night, probably the first three years, that was our, they were our holidays, basically. And then we broadened our horizons a little bit after that. But yeah, very, what a losers, basically. What a waste of a trip. Oh, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it was all about the wrestling, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and and to be fair, Houston and we we I, I've been using because we watch WrestleMania 25. It's not really a sightseeing place. It's a it's a it's a working city. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like 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 Frankfurt in Germany is a similar feel. Birmingham, you know what I mean? It's like they're not really. <laughs> I'm not being nasty, but they're not really tourist places. They are just functioning cities. Are you telling me there's nothing to do there? No, other no. than watching Jerry Springer in the hotel. Well, undoubtedly, Stephen is a waste of life, but I'm just, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm just kind of trying to, you know, soften the blow somewhat. <laughs> oh, genuinely, up to the point where Lewis could drink. The first three years, he couldn't legally drink in the states. After that, all of our, all our holidays really were about. If we were in New York, we'd do a little bit of uh, trips. But all it was about was doing the wrestling and doing the whole weekend, so like WrestleMania, Raw, SmackDown, etc., traveling around, and then going out and getting, you know, getting on it. it sounds terrible, doesn't it? 
like I, I'm, I'm still in that, that club 1830s thing and I'm well past it now but that was what the holidays were so daytimes were either hungover days or preparing to go out basically so it's really pathetic thinking back on it now but there we go there you go you well, heard it here first Stephen is yeah. really pathetic that's what he said <laughs> I'm not misquoting him definitely we did said. meet some nice girls on spring break at the Maury po- we didn't see Maury Povich taped as well so I can't it wasn't all bad so yeah there you go anyway the we, we I guess <laughs> we I guess we Sorry. I guess we I guess we've left the Phil and Grant Mitchell of WWE behind and we're moving on. <laughs> so Matt, what was your talking point? My talking point is gonna be one Ken Shamrock. I haven't seen very many Ken Shamrock matches. Based on this one versus The Rock, I really am gonna look up a hell of a lot more of his matches. I thought this was absolutely brilliant. And not only the the, the match, but you want to look at how to push and make a baby face. Exhibit A, Ken Shamrock. He, in many ways, he kind of reminded me of, of bits of Brock Lesnar um, over the last couple of years. Obviously, there's the comparison because, they, you know, they're both fighters. But he was just super over doing this food with The Rock. He just, he came in, he kicked ass. He threw people around, beat the shit out of them. I mean, it was quick. It was impactful. It was bloody brilliant. And honestly, this was this was one of my lasting impressions of the show. Was this match? I thought it was absolutely brilliant. The finish, I, I was, I thought that was a little bit. Well, I Matt, since you're about to comment on it, why don't you just tell everyone what it is? <laughs> I don't want to steal the thunder, but no, um, no, no. It makes more sense if you say it now if you're going to comment on it. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so the finish. Well, it seemed as if the Rock had tapped out uh, to the ankle lock, and Ken Shamrock had become the new Intercontinental Champion. However, after beating the bejesus out of multiple referees, they then decided to reverse the decision, and Rock retained the title. So. I think they could have done that a little bit better because it was a little bit confusing. But like the, the best way I could describe this is I felt for the first time in quite a while, I felt like a genuine fan watching this. And the result was actually a shock to me to the point of I did go, what the fuck? Very loudly when they said that decision. I was pissed. So heel heat, okay, achieved. I was absolutely tamping. And I wanted to see what happened next. I was again. I hope to God that they they run it back and Ken beats the shit out of him again and, and gets the title because I just thought this was brilliant storytelling at its finest. I'm I'm quite quite glad that you enjoyed it because I was worried you were going to not like Ken Shamrock based on this because for me it's a bit of a waste and it's one of the reasons why I think the show falls down because it's not really a match is it? It lasts about four and a half minutes. It's more of an angle than anything else and I don't think The Rock gets a single bit of offence in. I think Shamrock just beats the shit out of him like you said which is a shame because Ken Shamrock was genuinely really good. Like he really was. He was legitimately legitimate and he felt legitimate. He was presented as this really hard man kind of thing and there are, I think, the match at the Rumble between these two is better by quite a long way, in my view. And he was he was genuinely good. Unfortunately, the booking of him as a babyface wasn't that great because they never delivered. And this would have been the place to deliver for him. He needed to beat The Rock and do it to win the title here. You know, that's what they needed him to do. And he, he just didn't do it. And then there's only so much failure that fans can live with before they go ask oh, to hell with you um i you know I, you've let me down too many times and that's kind of what happened here with ken shamrock and over the course of 98 including this fans got so fed up of it and also fed up of shamrock being stupid enough to get so angry that they turned on him and yet by the end of the year he was hill he finally did win the intercontinental title but that, by that point 
that all the fire had gone. It just wasn't it wasn't the same. When he first snapped, or when the, the most famous time when he first snapped anyway was SummerSlam ninety seven when he did against Bulldog, which again is in the archives you can listen to. The absolute kind of like crowd investment was massive, like they were huge pop for it. Everyone loved it. But he just kept doing it and it kept costing him to the point where the thing that Jerry Lawler used to say about him was he's not the most he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer even if he is the most dangerous and uh it was basically his gimmick became that he was a bit of an idiot and it, and it really was a shame because he should have probably he was the you look through this card at this time on this night he was probably your best candidate to be a main event player outside of the main event group at this time but it just didn't come about because they did things like this which meant he didn't deliver when it really mattered yeah i completely agree i i thought i put my notes that shamrock could have done more definitely he was over and he was in that weird spot because you could make an argument that he was number two babyface in the promotion at this time or there or thereabouts but it they just didn't protect him in the way that they did steve austin and there's another another parallel universe not the one with zany brett where shamrock had a really good babyface one beat the rock here and then you turn him you could turn him you could turn him and do a do a series with uh austin so i don't know whether they ever did anything and they had some interactions but for more on the same side i think than um than not yeah shamrock was over and i think you know it's it's, it's harking back to the Sami Zayn thing a little bit and obviously ryback though you wouldn't necessarily have put the title on ryback over punk and not had the, the match with the rock and sim punk at that royal rumble but you, you only get a certain amount of time of some of these baby faces. And if you lose it, it's gone and you're never going to get it back. Yeah, I think Ken just looked a bit stupid here, didn't he? Especially sort of just just for the whole thing. Like, why would you not? Surely the be- the best thing to do to kind of get get your get your own back, if you like, on the Rockets, just take the title. So you had it and you and you and you botched it. So yeah, this was this could have been really good, but it, it was shaping up nicely. But then um, unfortunately, turned into a bit of a turd at the end. 1998 as well is is a really interesting time because it's when things are really starting to happen. And um, and one of the people that is very very in fairness to him rightly credited for a lot of good stuff was vince russo but i do think this is where his shortcomings really show through he he always talks about how vince didn't care about anything under the main event basically he said to them what's austin doing what's the rock doing what's the undertaker doing and that's it he didn't really care about anything else and you can see that in the way that austin the undertaker and the rock are protected and everyone else is completely exposed because vince russo didn't have that sense of actually ken shamrock will become less popular if i do this with him and and if you watch 1998-1999 WWE, you will see that literally every single person on the roster, with the exception of Austin, turns babyface or heel at least once and many, many times, twice or three times mm-hmm. over the course of that year. Because that's it's all that's Vince Russo's thing is just constantly churning over, constantly trying to shock, constantly trying to have 15 things happen on every single show. And Shamrock was one of the victims of that. Whereas with someone who was a bit more consistent with their booking, who had a more coherent plan for how they were going to make Ken Shamrock or how they were going to use Ken Shamrock, would have probably realised the full potential of Shamrock at this time. But unfortunately, he was exposed by the whole Russo stuff. It's mad because like I had an idea of how the the sort of year panned out following this, but I was like thinking of you know thinking of watching it at this time. I was like, wow. Maybe they're going to go with Ken Shamrock as one of the top baby faces. That's how it certainly looked in terms of the booking. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, didn't seem to go that way. So on to my talking point. My talking point is the Battle Royal. And it's back to a little bit about to Vince Russo, actually, in some ways. Because first of all, let me say the Battle Royal is rubbish. It's a 15 team Battle Royal. So it's 30 men. 
which is insane. It lasts for sort of eight and, a, eight and a half minutes, and they were stretching the possibilities here in terms of tag teams. So, you know, they've got two tag teams from the nation. They've got two tag teams from Los Bariquas. They've got a team from the DOA. They've got a team which is Chains and Bradshaw, Chains being in the DOA, Bradshaw not being in the DOA, which is just weird. They've got Scott Taylor and Brian Christopher together for the first time, I believe. This was their first sort of proper tag team outing. But Brian Christopher prior to this point was a heel. Scott Taylor prior to this point was a babyface, but they just chucked them together because they were like, well, we need two two wrestlers to go together. You've got the, the recently kind of created Midnight Express, the, the long since not as good as they used to be Quebecers. Just a hideous you know waste of space on the roster basically all the way through i think there's a who's scorpio who's who's two called scorpio team with i can't remember who he's team with but he's team with someone in, in this match as well steve blackman steve blackman and flash funk are a tag team and what's that about lovely and the 15th team because there's a mystery 15th team that i've not been announced prior to the show is the legion of doom legion of doom 2000 though i should call them which is what they were they were called here they had last been seen having split up effectively in a brawl on raw with each other disappeared for a couple of weeks and then they arrived here with the new look slightly new music and sunny as their manager sunny seeming to be the kind of dream team manager because she managed three or four teams the tag team titles a couple of years before it's terrible it's not a good match it's really poor but in it were signs or indications of what WWE's product was at the time and one of the strengths of WWE's product which is that nearly everybody had something going on and this is the sort of flip side to what I was saying about Shamrock with Russo's booking is that because he was so into like flipping people babyface and heel turning people having people betray others all the time and pretty much you could go every single episode of Raw somebody was doing something you weren't expecting them to do it meant that in nearly all the cases on in his match a bunch of people have got stuff going on so at one point Barry Windham runs down to the ring attacks chains and throws him out because Barry Windham and Bradshaw had just recently split up having been the new blackjacks previously Kurgan comes out attacks Recon and Sniper because they'd left the Truth Commission which was managed by the Jackal who was Kurgan's manager now none of those things ever mattered ever meant anything and those wrestlers were likely never mean anything and never matter they had a lot of poor wrestlers on the roster at the time and that's because they didn't have any choice WSW were hoovering up all the talent at a rate of knots they had a humongous roster and WWE were left with what they were left with and ultimately did what they could with it so it required somebody to come along and actually try and fashion something interesting out of these different acts and that's what they did nearly every week and though the result of that didn't really mean anything and wouldn't be remembered by anybody ultimately it meant that raw each week passed fun it was fun it wasn't like a chore ever to get through nearly every segment something took place even if it was a run-in as i say by barry windham for example to go after bradshaw two wrestlers that very few people cared about but something was happening with them and it didn't affect anything else it didn't make anything else feel less important because as i said before vince mcmahon had the filter for the stuff that really mattered and made the money and so it just added up to something that meant raw was incredibly watchable in fact unmissable because it was just constantly things were going on even as early as this point when wwe were still losing the monday night, monday night wars they they had a show that was really watchable and it's because of things like what happened in this in this battle royal so terrible match but i just thought a really interesting indication of wwe's product and the way it had, the, the things they were trying to do with it constantly week after week 
in all that, I didn't even say who won. It was of course <laughs> the Doom 2000, uh, last eliminating the new Midnight Express of Bob Holly and Bart Gunn. Another two wrestlers that were going absolutely nowhere, and they were just trying to repackage, trying to find something for them to do. So yeah, that's that's who won, and that that gave the Legion of Doom a chance to face the tag team champions at the next month's pay per view, Unforgiven. I have to say that 16 year old me was a fan of Sunny. I was always more a Sunny guy than Sable, albeit after some of her more unsavoury actions and videos, I'm less of a sunny fan in 2023 less of a fan but not apparently <laughs> completely off <laughs> not, not completely off not never she'll never be completely gone um well, i shouldn't say that actually we all die at some point unless sunny's immortal it took the lod 2000 a long time to get their new gear off you'd think that they they'd have practiced this and it reminded me of trying to get my ski boots off while on holiday with various friends money now i do realize that's the most middle class thing i've ever seen said on a podcast trying to get my ski boots off but there is nothing worse than being rushed on holiday yeah and i suspect both animal and hawk had quite a, a forehead sweat accumulating as i did trying to get those boots off my boy Yes, I'm 41 years old. I just said my boy, uh, Ricky Morton, was in this. And you can listen to three delicious hours of chat with Ricky in the Pro Wrestling Moments archive. Sorry, Ben, you've already plugged me, but I've got that in my notes. So I've plugged it again. And the crowd were into LOD. And I, I, you know what? It was crap, but I didn't mind it. It's OK. You know, it was about getting them back out there, getting sunny with them, etc. And it set up a future tag team title match. So I was OK with this. Yeah, I wasn't. this is very much a prime example of just less is more it was just way too much going on to to even remotely give a shit about anybody involved like trying to take notes i i practically abandoned taking notes because i just realized that there's no way that i can really keep track of what's going on hell the announcers were struggling to keep track of what was going on it was just a ridiculous amount of teams all in there at once it just it, it this was not for me it just it just didn't work i mean you know the, the crowd liked it so okay you know i guess in the grander scheme of things it, it clearly did but it, it was it wasn't to my taste just too too much going on you can't keep track of it and i'm not a big fan of battle royals i mean you know a good 90 percent of it is kick punch kick punch throw somebody over the top rope it's just it doesn't feel like there's anything to it so yeah for me this was a this was almost a fast forward option you know it's a shame as well up until the andre the giant memorial battle royal Every single battle royal that took place on the WrestleMania card had a different element or a different name to it. So, for example, this is the tag team battle royal. At WrestleMania 16, there's a hardcore battle royal. At WrestleMania 17, there's a gimmick battle royal. At WrestleMania 2, there was the WWE versus NFL battle royal. At WrestleMania 4 was the regular battle royal. But as I said, that's fine because there's no other repeat of that until you get to Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal. There's a Miss Divas WrestleMania Battle Royal, in, I think at WrestleMania 25 or something. I like the fact they never repeated it. It was always something different every time until they started doing the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal. And then it. Yeah, they let themselves down. That was that's a disappointment for me. I, I get it. Battle Royals are not very good, but it's eight minutes. Come on. It, it was, and they wanted to get everyone on the card, and this is this is how they did it. No, 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 no. That that <laughs> will no. That will never wash with me. <laughs> I know, I know you don't. I know, and I I agree. I don't. I don't think they need to get everyone on the card. But if they're gonna do it, ah! let them do it. Let them do it in eight minutes rather than four extra hours. The the, the options shouldn't be you know have to do it or it, it should just be don't do it. i agree but they are going to do it right so if they're going to do it 
let them do it like this, where they get it overdone with really quickly. But when it looks like this year, there's not going to be any battle royal, and thank God for that. So it's quite clear they are capable of not doing it. It was on, um, it was on SmackDown s- last week, last year. That's what it? I was going to say. Yeah, the best one was when they did that. it. That's a great tradition. You'd have to watch it then. Perfect. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, yeah. I mean, I hope so. But anyway, we, we got a few battle royals to come yet. But as I say, they were all kind of a little bit different. And then they did the Andre the Giant one, and it was like, oh, wow. Well, that no. one sucks as well. Does anybody actually? Has any of the, the people who actually won the Andre the Giant battle royal said like later on, yes, I'm the proud winner of the Andre the Giant, but this is my trophy? No, because nobody gives a shit. I think ultimately, when you've got the Royal Rumble, you don't need a battle royal, do you? Yeah, There's no need right. for battle royals once you've got the rumble. It's all it's been optimized by the rumble. Mm. Okay, so that's talking points. Uh, I guess we should move on with the rest of the show at least for another ten minutes until we get to uh, a good time to break. And I thought we'd talk about at this point the performance, though you wouldn't have seen it on the WWE Network, of America the Beautiful <laughs> slash the Star Spangled Banner. So it is a mashup by the DX band. They do both of them in one go. It's been cut from the network version. It actually had been cut from the VHS, which is why it's not on the network version. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. It was well, it was received so poorly by the fans mm. in attendance. <laughs> so they get announced by the Fink and they start and they do the first line of the Star Spangled Banner and it's just booze. You can hear the booze in the background. They do the rest of the song, which, which as I said, segues into America the Beautiful. And at the end, they just get booed out of the building. And I guess it's probably not because it's bad, even though it is bad, but it's more that it's, I think, disrespectful or it was seen as being disrespectful at the time. Interesting. So that's that's the angle here as to why, because I can't remember if I've ever watched a tag classic of this. I had this on VHS for years recorded straight off Sky. So I think that that's the version of this that I'm most familiar with, the, 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 you know, the pay-per-view as it aired. But it's interesting because not only are they cut that out, but the the original, the, the kind of WrestleMania opening montage music is different as well. I don't know if you noticed that, Ben, but they cut that out. And also, so is I was I, I put on WrestleMania 19 for some reason the other day just to watch the start of it. And that's different as well. So there's loads of cuts in these and I don't get it. So is it like surely, surely this stuff would have been checked at the time for copyright but it's some it's some it's something happened that means that because it's really really grating it's because some of these videos especially this one is a really really good video but it's to- it totally lost me as soon as i heard that it wasn't the original music but the, the original was the original music licensed or anything or it was just the sort of music you'd expect it to be like a stocky kind of stocky stock <laughs> sort of music orchestral type dramatic music i don't get it it's weird yeah it's really strange i did look up i said i looked up the DX band versions of the American Beautiful and the Star Spangled Banner on YouTube. There is some clips of it on the network as part of Jerry Springer Too Hot for TV episode, but you don't get the full thing. And they present it as if it's two different songs, but they actually, it's one song performed live. And as I said, it's, it's not very good, but it was there. God damn it. They did it. They actually mm. did American Beautiful, which is very important. I don't care how bad it is. I don't care who has to do it. Get bloody Elias to do it if you want. But just get someone out there to sing the bloody song. They did it, so I'm happy. Jim Ross does an excellent job afterwards of selling this. So the crowd are booing the shit out of it. And it is bad. And then Jim Ross says, there you go, a fine example of you won't get this anywhere else in America or in sports entertainment. WWE truly is the place for freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And yeah. I was like, well, can't argue with that. Very, very good. Also, another little bonus nugget for you is that the guitarist in the DX band is actually Jim Johnson. Oh, 
Wow, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's pretty cool as well. So this would have been his one time, I assume, in front of the camera yeah. on a WWE show, and it's been cut from the history books simply because, well, I, I assume because of the of the um, perceived disrespect that was shown towards the national anthem. So Matt, you're, I'm assuming you haven't seen it. No, I haven't. <laughs> I think you'll have to look that up on YouTube. There is a, there is a way to see it. So uh, yeah, definitely recommend it. Just to see it. It's a, we're completists. We need to get we need to get everything done. I think I'm going to have to start watching these on DVD, I think, because I can't hack these changes. Yeah, but just... as I said, this one was on not on the DVD. Okay. This one was was cut from the DVD. As I understand it was cut from the VHS. I, so I, even the tag, so it would be cut from tag classics as well, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, I okay. So, yeah. Yeah. so you're not going to see this no matter what you do. And I wonder how much of that is the case for a lot of these things. Like if you have cut it from the network, there's probably a reason, especially if it's like just some music. Like, yeah. You would think that the same reason applies to the VHS and it wouldn't be on there either. So I, well, I think know. they, not to skip too much to WrestleMania 19, but the America the Beautiful WrestleMania 19 was Ashante, I believe. And it was right at the start of the Gulf War. So there's lots of kind of military pictures. And I remember actually it being really strange actually watching that in Safeco Field because there's a lot of Union Jacks in the video as well. So it's like clearly, you know, allied forces, etc. But that was completely cut from the DVD release. So I don't think that will be on the network either in terms of Ashanti doing America the Beautiful. I wondered whether it's because of that, because it's literally the things you can imagine, like American fighter jets flying over and tanks and all that. Not good stuff, really. So, yeah, it's just strange. I, I do feel like I know stuff like the Roddy Piper thing at WrestleMania 6. And I do understand maybe some of the right stuff. But actually, I don't. Just just pay pay to have what you've got so much money. You've got billions and billions of dollars. Just pay whatever needs to be paid to get these music rights in perpetuity and just have the events as they are. It one off payment to someone's whoever, you know, I just don't. I don't. And it really grates on me because but I don't know if you've ever seen any of the Hogan stuff in 2002, but Voodoo Child was cut out. And it's just the, the music over the top is horrific and it just kills it. It kills the moments, kills his entrances. And it's just, yeah, it's not good at all. They, they've done the same thing with the Undertaker's rolling song as well. But they, yeah. drives drives me up the wall. Yeah. Yeah. And I, they also did that with the Johnny Cash entrance that Undertaker had as well, which was a real shame. The Ain't No Grave one, which I really liked. Yeah, it is, it is a shame. It is, it is a shame that they've they've done that. And you're right. You know, surely there's some flat fee that they can provide, they can pay to some licensing agency to say, look, you distribute the the, the fees as needed, as appropriate, yeah. and we will use X X Y and Z to in the thing. Anyway, they've done it now, and they're not gonna they're not gonna undo it, are they? Right. So this is a this is a pointless <laughs> argument, I guess. <laughs> There's a few other things in the opening of the show I wanted to talk about. So first of all, we have got the video package, which you spoke about briefly there, Stephen, tying the past to the present in a kind of cool way. And still the WrestleMania theme survives. Now, I don't know. Again, is that on the original average? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So Tom commented last week that he thought it might be the last time he heard it on WrestleMania 13. But no, it's here as well for just a mm. few more. I wonder if it, um, it'd be very interesting to see if it lasts still WrestleMania 15. I don't think it does. I think I, I think the it's some sort of different music at 15 and then it cuts into a theme song i think a theme tune i think writes the theme tune sings the theme tune um so yeah i think that's on wrestlemania 15 it, it does go to linda mcmahon at some point relatively soon doesn't it so yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> <So> yeah. <laughs> yes it does i've forgotten that amazing Linda's Linda's music <laughs> and unfortunately it's listed on um, or there's a version of it listed on Spotify, and it's called Linda's Theme, not anything. Oh, no. <laughs> wow. The other thing I wanted to mention was that we have Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler on commentary in this one for the first time, just the two of them. So 
I guess, Matt, we're now into your real wheelhouse when it comes to the commentary. Absolutely. And, do you know, JR was great on this show. There was multiple times where you could really tell he really does enjoy his job. And, yeah, I really enjoyed the pair of them on this. Yeah, I thought they were really good as well, actually. I think this is classic time for both of them, really. And they just, Jim Ross had so much energy and Lawler wasn't grating, I didn't think particularly either. So, yeah, I thought they they did a good job here. Good stuff. So that kind of sums up the whole of the the first sort of half of the show. We've got we've got everything before the battle royal, and we've done the battle royal. You'll be pleased to know. Amazingly, we've all we've done all our talking points, and we haven't covered the main event, which is arguably one of the most significant main events of all time. So we'll get to that in the second half, I guess. I like it so much that we're doing the main event last. It's <laughs> I'm almost mildly aroused by it. So I'll <laughs> wow. show you that at the conclusion of the podcast. Get, well, your, well, get your magnifying glasses out. <laughs> well, let's even go and sort that out in the break, and then we'll uh, come back, and hopefully he won't be too rosy-cheeked on the other side. I can still hear the echoes cheering my name. Time has not silenced the problem. I never did a moonsault. Or walk the top rope. There were no pyrotechnics. No fancy flashing lights. We never flew through the air. We were men of courage. Men of steel. They were men without fear. I can still hear the echoes cheering my name. But today, I cheer for them. Okay, welcome back. So we head on straight into the rest of the show. And after the Battle Royal, there's some footage of WrestleMania weekend, I suppose, which has not been the fully formed WrestleMania weekend by this point. But the WWE had the public workout, the DX public workout on the Thursday with Tyson and Michaels kissing Austin on the bald head. Then Austin with Regis and Kathy Lee on Friday. Then Kids Company, I don't know what that is, and Champions Restaurant and Bar on the Saturday. So a little bit less high profile than it would be now, but already the WrestleMania weekend is beginning to take a form. Is it just me, or does Stone Cold look really uncomfortable doing press? He, he did to yeah, me, because, I, I think. Yeah, because what do you do with that character? Mm. That's the problem, because you can't really call Regis a, like a boring old bastard or something. Can you? So, <laughs> um, so that's that's a challenge for him, and I think that's probably why you didn't really hear too much of him in this, did you? You were sort of because he had to. I'm sure he got more comfortable with this as time went on and found the right tone. But this is pretty early for him still in terms mm. of you know doing this and, and being kind of this sort of media juggernaut really that he turned into with the celebrity death match stuff and all the other stuff he did over the next what three or four years. I think you're right. I think this wasn't the right setting for him to do the the main, mainstream stuff. And they did, as you said, they did Celebrity Deathmatch. And that was a much better way of having Austin cross over into the mainstream and appear in, in non-wrestling setting because... How do you do that character on Regis and Kathy Lee? You just you just can't unless unless Regis is gonna accept you like going in there stunnering him and you know causing hell, which just wouldn't make sense. It's a daytime TV program for crying out loud. It just doesn't just doesn't work. That is then followed by the WWF light heavyweight title match between Taka Michinoku and Aguilar, match that goes for just under six minutes and ends when Taka counters a dive with a drop kick, then hits a Michinoku driver for the pin. Matt, what did you make of this? This was a little treasure, this was. 
I thought this was absolutely delightful. I, I really enjoyed this. There was a couple of things here I, I felt they were both trying a little bit too hard to maybe be a bit too flashy. There was a couple of sort of slips and trips here and there, but, but, but nothing, you know, particularly major. But, you know, there was some really nice stuff done. Um, You know, like, Ag- I can't even pronounce his name. I'm terrible with pronouncing names, damn it. Aguila, yeah, help me out here. Loud it. Yep. Thank you. There we go. You could have also called him Papi Chulo or Essa Rios. Pick, pick your poison. Essa Rios it is, because that name I, I completely remember a hell of a lot. Was this Essa Rios? Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either, to be fair. No, so, hey, I'm, sh- I'm shocked. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. S.A. Rios had a WrestleMania match. Fucking good for him. Well done. He did a cracking, really good corkscrew um, outside the ring at one point, which I thought was awesome. Taka hit a really cool moonsaw, tried this really good splash off the top. Uh, but S.A. Rios, yes, I'm going to go with that. Had his knees up. Good couple of drop kicks in there. I thought, like I said, it was, it was really good. It was, it was very fast paced. And you could definitely tell that. I, I feel that just by having this match, you know, it was the company trying to throw him out there and say, look, we do things different. We we have this type of match, you know. We have, you know, really good wrestling, fast, sort of small guys. Um, you know, so I, I really enjoyed this one. Like I said, it was the, the, the odd sort of slip and trip, but I, I thought they both worked really hard, and, and, and this was actually pretty good. What is it about Spanish pronunciation that you, you don't know how to do, Matt? I mean, this isn't even hard. Aguilar, come on, it's really not difficult. Why, why, why is it that you can't do it? <laughs> I, I mean, I get, I, get, I get El Gigante. There's a certain amount of getting to the back of your throat with that. But Aguilar. I don't know. I, I keep feeling like I, I'm just, I don't know, just in the back of my head. I'm like, no, nah, that, that doesn't sound right. You're doing it wrong. There's, there's some there's some mispronunciation. And I, I don't know. I say Rios. That's what I'll go with instead. I, Jim Ross talks about the number of press on hand. And I, I distinctly remember there were write-ups to Tyson's involvement in this event in various newspapers. I think we got the Telegraph and the Mail then which is probably a pretty shocking. Uh, <laughs> you can sort of tell which shirts, which uh, which leanings politically my parents were, can't you? Uh, from that, uh, but yeah, they were in both. So so this, you know, this was a huge deal. Aguila, I'm I'm worried about this now. Yeah. Uh, Come he, on, guys, Aguila. It's not hard. Aguila, Aguila. It doesn't look. It doesn't sort of read very well phonetically, I suppose, does it? In terms of the, well, maybe it does. And I'm just being a bit dumb here, but I loved his corkscrew plant shot, and I thought he was miles better than Taka here. And as as you said. I really like this. I thought the crowd sort of got into some of it, but not massively. And I thought the two deserve more for what was you know, about as good as a six minute match. The odd slip aside as you could do. And I could only imagine what dear Triple H thought about following these two after they were flying all over the place. I could see him moaning about people not being able to work and not selling and all this sort of stuff. Was fast forward about, what, 20 years and he was promoting this sort of stuff every month on uh, NXT, wasn't he? But yeah, a very enjoyable match. On a quick side note from me, the light heavyweight title is gorgeous. Mm, I do yeah. like the title. Yeah, I'm agreeing with that. I like that one. I, I think the reason they didn't get any longer is because Aguilar couldn't do anything else. Basically, he gave you everything he knew how to do. He didn't know how to wrestle. <laughs> he just chucked himself all over the place. Yeah, that's so a fair point. They did construct a, a not boring match, but it isn't really very good. I mean, it's sort of like, let's just throw throw ourselves all over the place. And Aguilar just happens to be able to do the slightly more spectacular stuff. But Taka could actually wrestle, whereas Aguilar couldn't. I mean, he just couldn't. That's, they, they did everything they could. They gave him three different gimmicks to try and get him over it during his time in WWE. And none of them worked. It's because he can't wrestle and that's why this is only six minutes long because the the sort of myth is or the or the legend is that when Taka and Great Sasuke had their kind of match at Canadian Stampede WWF were looking to sign Great Sasuke and Mm. it was kind of just a almost a tryout for him but Taka impressed 
and they probably felt they could pay him a little bit less than the great Sasuke and so went with him instead so that's why Takamichinoku kind of got signed and I think he got signed to quite a good deal as well remember it's quite a big six-figure deal at the time for someone who ultimately would be a lower mid-card perhaps even sort of opening act kind of wrestler and I feel like they never really gave him or the light heavyweight division really a chance to succeed and I think partially their idea for it was to be the straight sport part of the presentation the problem is is that WWE have never been very good at just doing straight sport presentation and then you add on the fact that Vince Russo is in control of all this stuff it's just never going to happen it's just not going to work and so Taka was barely on television for most of the year having won the championship and then dumped the belt to Christian late in the year and that was kind of really the end of it because after that I think Dwayne Gill ended up with it or something I can't even remember anymore it faded into obscurity until they did the, the invasion and then they thought well, well we've got a cruiserweight title as well so we can sort of have them go up against each other so after this we've got some woman I, I didn't know the name of her at the time and she did appear later on and they did give her name but i'm scrabbling through my notes to jennifer, find jennifer, flowers. Flowers. jennifer flowers i should have given her her flowers after all she's in a sit-down interview with the rock where she asks the rock a number of political based questions and he gives his opinions on the contemporary uh, issues of the day which was actually a bit of the rocks gimmick at this time he would say i know everybody all the rocks fans are asking what the rock thinks about this and he would give his opinion on it this was kind of just a way of expanding that a little bit in a different setting just quite funny that makes a lot more sense now because at the time i was like what the hell was this about is he running for president then as well no he, he did this kind of pretty much every interview he'd do something where he'd say everyone wants to know what the rock thinks about x and then he'd talk about it for a bit i was gonna say how'd you get jennifer with a g gets oh, jennifer no. and that's just vile i did like it when the rock said hung jury referring to presumably his massive schlong though so that did put that appeal to me even at my advancing age so here we go do you say that with do you know about that with experience or something that is i'm i just i mean i suspect you know the rock's a specimen all all over isn't he i, I would say so <laughs> i can't imagine he's got any problems in that department though you know he's probably titan sports protein shakes might have had an impact on that over the years so you never know yeah i thought this was all right and i think you know it was at least a sort of window into early rock as as the rock not rocky my beer and he would become as time went on more and more of a catchphrase machine but earlier on he he had less of them and he did little bits of other things and not it wasn't bad i quite liked it i I think you know he came across as charismatic and i think maybe also the lack of catchphrases helped him be more of a heel than he would later become i think that later on it was harder and harder to get heat on him because people just wanted to sing along and um at this point didn't have that problem then we get the DX band play Triple H to the ring. Darn sight more capable than they did with the old national anthem and America the Beautiful. We then see some footage of Raw where China attacked Owen Hart's leg and helped Triple H win the European title from him in the first place. We then have Sergeant Slaughter insist that China is handcuffed to him, which I think might be an abuse of power, to be perfectly honest with you, to prevent her getting involved in this match. While she is reluctant to do so and gets in his face until Slaughter puts the handcuffs on her without her knowing. This is all before... Triple H's defense of the European title against Owen Hart in an 11 and a half minute match, which ends when China throws powder into Sergeant Slaughter's eyes, then hits Owen with a low blow, allowing Triple H to hit a pedigree and pin Owen Hart to retain the belt. Stephen, 
I thought the DX band's instrumental version of their theme was great. I really liked it. I found myself sort of nodding my head, tapping my feet. It was really good. Talking about themes, Owen Hart's 1998 theme was so bad. I felt sorry for it. It was just shockingly bad. Um, I thought this was a bit of a slow burner, but it got better and better. Uh, and the closing stages, the crowd were really into the near falls and Owen going for the sharpshooter. And I thought it was enjoyable. And I, even the screwy finish didn't worry me too much. And I tell you what, I really loved and as did the Boston crowd, China destroying Sergeant Slaughter afterwards. And Lola said that he thought that Slaughter had said something dirty to her. And that's why she beat him up, which is amazing as well. I think Jim Ross defended him. But yeah, this is I, I really enjoyed this. And I don't remember thinking at the time that I, you know, I think I probably thought that 16 hour Irene should have just won this, blah, blah, blah. I love Brett. But yeah, so I enjoyed this. I thought it was just good. What did you think, Matt? Yeah, this was actually pretty good. Um, I, I, do you know, I almost forgot that it was actually for the European Championship. I, I'm not sure how you guys feel about it, but I got to be honest, I, I've never been fond of the European title. And from my memories of it, it always comes across as quite jabronified. So whenever I see the European title, I am a bit like, ugh. But like I said, I, I forgot that it was, was for that. But um, the match-wise, it, it was actually pretty good. I mean, it was obvious that they were trying to, you know, to build something with, uh, you know, China getting involved at the end, which she eventually did, with the classic powder-in-the-eyes spot, which, God, don't, don't they don't promoters just love that powder-to-the-eyes spot? <laughs> yeah, this this was pretty good. Both guys worked quite hard. And I think, particularly over the last couple of shows, like I've seen, you know, certainly seen some of Triple H's really early stuff it's really interesting to see him i mean well basically to, to wrestle a hell of a lot more i say more than he's done and just you know try different i mean obviously he was trying to sort of find himself as a character i suppose so you know try different things and, and to see him do stuff like you know i, I couldn't tell you the last time i saw triple h hit a power bomb but he did in this so i was like oh okay something different so that, that was cool owen again great as usual uh, and what I said earlier on, um, JR being great on commentary, this match in particular, I don't necessarily have like any sort of specific quotes to pick out, but just, you know, passion wise, my God, you could really tell that JR's a guy who loves his job uh, and it really came through on this one. So this was good. Enjoyed it. So first of all, on the European title, I think that the key thing about that was that it was supposed to be a vehicle for the Dave, for Dave Boy Smith. That was basically what it was going to be. Bulldog was the first champion beat Owen Hart in a tournament in Germany and then lost the title at one night only, which was a UK exclusive pay-per-view, the first exclusive UK pay-per-view. And the idea was at one point for David Boy Smith to win it back at the UK pay-per-view in 1998. But of course that didn't happen because David Boy left with Brett at Survivor Series 97. And that's when the European title became basically just a prop. Um, and then also Vince Russo's booking didn't help because Vince Russo doesn't really think of titles as being something to protect the prestige of. So it just became more and more silly. Also, that second show didn't air on pay-per-view in the end either. No, I Mayhem in Manchester. Yeah. It was the glorified house show in the end yeah. where The Undertaker wore his street clothes because he forgot so. or didn't have his costume with him. <laughs> the match itself, agree. I think it starts very slowly, builds well. I just think it may build a little too slowly for my, for my taste. Just took a little bit of time to get going. But when it did get going, it was good. Crowd were invested. And I, I thought it was a decent match. I still, though, even at this point, don't see Triple H as any kind of having a chance of being a main event guy. Just does not at all do anything for me at this point in his career. And I still think 
China is the main reason anyone gives a damn about him at this point. China was genuinely a standout, very interesting, very different, very, very big part, I think, of an overlooked part of WWF's overall success during this year because she just offered something that we hadn't seen before and just was was just a really interesting act. And for me, Triple H wasn't, and Triple H at this point still just no chance. Just did not look like a main event guy at all for the WWF. No, I'd agree. I don't, I didn't really see much. Uh, though it was the same year, and th- a lot of this stuff feels like it's th- far more spaced out than it was. So obviously, in a short, fairly short amount of time, Triple H should be the Triple H would be le- the legit number two babyface in the promotion as the head of DX. And actually, it was only mm. really in the autumn period after he beat The Rock in the ladder match at. Um, SummerSlam 98 that I could kind of see it then um, and you wondered whether in that in 99 whether he was going to get kind of involved in the world title picture before he actually turned but yeah at this point no way did I think there was any any particularly significant upside in this guy at all I don't think he really made it there until his matches with Mick Foley in the yeah, early he didn't, 2000s yeah. That was when he really kind of suddenly, oh, hang on, maybe he really is. Maybe he can do this. Maybe he can yeah. actually be in this position. But until then, no, I'm I, I not having it at all. I think the heel turn obviously was the right thing for him to do. But I actually think directly after the heel turn, that knocked him down quite a bit, I thought, actually, uh, in a weird sort of way. Because he was he went from a very popular baby face to a heel that people I didn't think really bought into until the, the, ser- the series you said, um, Ben, with, um, with Catches Jack and Mankind. Well, let's leave that for next time because that's yes. all to come yeah. come about at WrestleMania 15. So that's that match. So we move on. Um, we get some shots of the crowd. JR says that there's been some technical difficulties which have now been sorted. Don't really know what was going on there. Either they've cut something or it was well covered by Jim Ross on commentary. We then get a hype video for the next match. Mixed tag team match between uh, Mero and Sable against gold dust and luna it documents mero's jealousy of sable who was getting huge pops all the time massively popular then mero attempting to get help from gold dust and luna to sort of bring the attention back to him sable and luna though falling out as part of that and gold dust trying to stop sable and then mero objecting to gold dust stopping sable uh, stopping sable and therefore coming to blows with him even a moment of vince russo in this video package is actually on screen at one point which Leads us to Mark Marrow and Sable versus Goldust and Luna Vashan, a nine minute contest mixed tag team match, as I say, which is won by Sable and Marrow when Sable hits a TKO on Luna and gets the pin. I'm going to go first on this one and I'm going to say something hideously controversial. Match of the night. Easily. Easily match of the night. Absolutely sensational match this is. Absolutely sensational. For a match where you've got Sable, who has never had a professional wrestling match in her entire life, Mero and Goldust, who by this point, Goldust was deep into his substance abuse, really no real value to anyone, and Mero, who had got injured end of 96, and it had basically taken three steps out of his ability to wrestle. This is phenomenal. This is a phenomenal match. The crowd eat every second of it up. They've had an amazing story. Not an amazing story. They've had a decent story building up to it, which makes sense. It's been featured every week on Raw for about three or four months building up to this. I just thought this was, this blew me away, genuinely. Sable looked every bit a superstar in this, as big as any act bar Austin on the entire show, quite frankly. And she was, and again, much like China, a hugely underrated factor in WWE turning around the Monday Night War. Regardless of what you think of her, regardless of her talent, regardless of anything else she was absolutely key to wwf winning the Monday night rings war only austin and the rock in my view were more important than than sable and china ultimately on this road maybe controversial but that's how i feel about it matt what did you make of it (laughs) 
I didn't like it quite as much as you, but I was pleasantly surprised. This was actually pretty good. You know, it, it did completely surprise me to learn that this was Sable's first match ever. And do you know what? Bravo for that, because as far as debuts go, that's pretty bloody good. You know, <laughs> she could have done a hell of a lot worse. So, so fair play to her for that. It was a lesson for me um, in sort of learning how really over Sable was at the time. Now, you know, again, as, as I've said on the pod many times, you know, I started watching in 2001. So my sort of first interaction of being able to see Sable in WWE was when she made a return in 2003, I believe it was. So I didn't understand when she came back. I didn't get it. Um, I was like, you know, who the hell is this? They explained. Da, 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 da. I was like, yeah, okay, all right, whatever, somebody from the past, blah, blah, blah. But then when you go back and watch this, you're absolutely right. I mean, bloody hell was she over. I mean, the, the pop that she got for hitting a, you know, a power bomb, which, wow. I mean, the, the, the crowd was super into her as a star and, and she felt like a big deal so fair play like I said this this you know again this stuck out for me in a, in a good way on this show this was actually pretty pretty bloody enjoyable gotta say applause to all of them which way am I going here which way am I going this is set this was absolutely fantastic this is my match of the night it was so good and before before the match the, the video package and this is the kind of Maury Povich Jerry Springer one we had Michael Cole on, on the voiceover and it was unintentionally hilarious some of the key like, he describes Sable as young kind beautiful and in love and Wrestlemania's battle of beauty and the beast will determine Sable's life love and future wow just just absolutely brilliant speaking of things that were brilliant Luna had a tongue piercing big fan of those uh, and also to say that the crowd was pumped for anything that Sable did would be quite the understatement they absolutely erupted when she hit kind of a switching music style thing on Goldust early on and then she, they went berserk when she took Luna down and I have to give her a due she just had something didn't she with natural charisma or whatever it was and they just loved it they ate it up uh, we even got a Mr. Wrestling 2 call out during this after a Mero knee lift and Mero was he was channeling some early Johnny B bad in this like we talked about the WCW pay-per-views from kind of a little bit before this and you get like Johnny B bad in the open on the second match it'd be 18 minutes of brilliance you're like this guy was so good and, and and I didn't have a have a you know I remember Sable getting over in this match but I had no idea this was you know a forgotten classic on on WrestleMania 14 um, now Matt I've got one final thing to say um, which you might want to put earmuffs on for because it's uh, your favourite world-renowned feminist of mine uh, wrote the following about this match the silicon-laden pin-up wife of Mark Mero, put in the ring as a participant for the first time, was the true show-stealer doing a wide variety of karate kicks that looked better than several WCW wrestlers whose gimmicks were originally supposed to be as martial artists. So there you go. He had to do a little bit of a dig about the cosmetic surgery, but then gave us some, some props, which is nice. <laughs> that is nice. That is nice. Yeah, lovely. I feel vindicated by that, Stephen. And I, um, yeah. What it reminded me of a little bit as well, and I, I have to go, eventually we'll get to this match, but it also reminded me of the match where Triple H and Stephanie fought uh, Ronda Rousey and Kurt yeah, Angle. Yeah, that's a great shout. Because again, it's, and it's similar, like Kurt Angle well past his best done, Triple H well past his best done, Steve, Stephanie never really a wrestler, and Ronda Rousey in one of her first ever matches, like hiding the limitations and, you know, really like magnifying the good stuff, and they really did. And this wasn't the only time, like the SummerSlam 98 match that's also a mixed tag match, which is Edge and Sable against Mark Mero and Jacqueline, is Sable gets similarly massive reaction to her there, and she does a power on Mero and a hurricane 
ran off the top rope on Jacqueline. Oh, or maybe Mero, actually. I can't remember now. Again, in terms of absolutely making her look like a superstar, they really did. And this is also Sable's the reason why they brought back the women's title. They would never have done it without Sable, but they did because they were like, well, we need a vehicle for her. And that, that's the women's title. Now, of course, it never worked out. And Sable herself kind of perhaps overvalued. Well, no, I don't think she did overvalue, but she perhaps was in a company at the time that would not have accepted the demands that she made for a woman, which is bad to say, but I think that's true. But I don't think she overplayed her hand. I think she was right. She was one of the biggest attractions in the company. Ultimately, they were willing to pay her what she wanted and she left. But this year in particular, she was humongous as a star. Just yeah. humongous. Wasn't her Playboy the, one of the, what, the either the biggest, probably the, certainly top three, I think, biggest yeah. selling Playboys ever, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. And again, that was a new th- That was the other thing that she introduced, which WWE did for years and years after that point, which was the Playboy tie-in. So we move on. I got, sorry, I got so excited about talking about that match. I put my notes somewhere and yeah. it's like, we move on. So after this match, Tennessee Lee then comes to the ring and he introduces Jennifer Flowers. And I then put, what the fuck, Jennifer with a G? What's that about? <laughs> Although I guess, you know, I guess that means that we should call it Geff instead of Jeff, but no, never mind. Jennifer Flowers is with Jeff Jarrett. Jarrett asks, ain't I great? And she says she's been with great and he is great. Interesting. Not great enough to be included on the WrestleMania show that everybody in the world has been included on. But never mind, he is on the show. This was only sort of three, four months after Jarrett had returned to WWF as well. And they kind of really tried to get behind him. And he was on gimmick number three already by this point, I think. He just had a terrible return to the company. Flowers then introduces the competitors for the next match. So the Rock versus Ken Shamrock, which we've already discussed. Then we get a promo video that Tom was talking about, I think, at one point last week or two weeks ago, I should say. And I honestly think it's the, the best little advert for the WWE attitude there's ever been. It's just it's emotional. It's got old bloody um fr- classic Freddy. No, no, it's not that one, is it? Oh, no, it's no, the, that's later. One. That's later. Sorry. This is the, the WWE fake, but it's still hard video. Yeah, sorry. So that's the yeah. Troy Lacey movie, which we've discussed before, I think, and we, you know, we disagreed a little that's bit on porn. it. And what was that? like porn now when they, make it, when they say it like that. It's the Troy Lacey in my boots uh, video first. Sorry, we'll get to the other one later. Can, Apologies. can I add one thing about the Troy Lacey in my boots video? Yes, you can. All that they took, they went all through the injuries, broken necks, concussions. Why didn't Shawn Michaels say, I lost my smile? <laughs> <laughs> Surely the worst injury of them all, wasn't it? JR then announces that the show is the highest grossing event in Boston history. Now, I don't know who he means of anything ever or just wrestling. <laughs> Doesn't make that distinction. Just says, I can't imagine that it's a higher grossing event than perhaps, you know, some big Red Sox games. Although saying that, the Red Sox hadn't made a World Series or hadn't won a World Series for many, many years before this. So maybe maybe it was. I don't know. Yeah, that can't be right, can it? Because there'd there be massive game like the Foxborough's the NFL stadium as well, isn't it? So this, this, that's just nonsense. The biggest thing in the history of Boston. Yeah, biggest thing ever, ever. <laughs> that is before the tag team title match which is up next the New Age Outlaws against Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie in a dumpster match dumpster rules match 10 minutes long it's chaotic they brawl around the ring they brawl up the aisle they brawl to the backstage and eventually Cactus and Chainsaw Charlie put the New Age Outlaws in a dumpster using a forklift and then close the lid to win apparently the tag team titles of course that was undone the next night on Raw because they used non-regulation dustbin can you believe that 
Why don't you go for a Stephen this time? The F in WWF was silenced during Road Dogg's pre-match spiel, which upset yeah. me an irrational amount. Just come on. Uh, I don't I didn't I don't like these sort of matches now. I didn't like it then. Rewatching the unprotected chair shots makes just made me feel a bit nauseous, really. And I thought the guys half killed themselves to little or no reaction here, other than the big spot where Jack and Gun went into the dumpster. And with the decision backstage, the crowd didn't react to it. I, I thought this whole thing was a bit sad, really. I can imagine, you know, having consumed so much McFoley stuff over the years in terms of books and podcasts that he would have probably been thinking about this for weeks and trying to create this incredible thing that just didn't I didn't think this worked on any level really um, and it was just just sad was my reaction to it this is one of the matches that for me created that initial buzz around the show and gradually people have reassessed it and gone actually not as good as it originally mm-hmm. appeared you know I think general gener- genuinely this was probably one of the highlights of the show at the time and then as time's gone on people have gone yeah it's not that good is it it's a bit messy it's a bit nothing and they go backstage and live crowds are always predisposed to hate going backstage because it's not in front of them where they've bought the tickets for so they may as well watch, watch it on tv so yeah I, I i i'm in agreement with you on this one i didn't think this was very good at all and it was very disappointing because as i say if i was if i was making a very quick list having pr- prior to doing this series of the best match on each show this might have been in contention for this show watching it now i can see it's nowhere near the best one. it's not even might even be the worst it's it's not why it's not as bad as the battle royal but it but it, it's probably the worst of everything else mm. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because i quite enjoyed this one it is interesting to to look back and, and of all the people who you know you 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 know the stars from the past who you see today mick foley's one who i do think oh my god i mean he really did you know he he just went above and beyond really above the call of duty you know to, to try and to, to get over the matches that he was in and i think that this was a prime example profile wise i'm not sure how you know looked forward he was you know going into the match you know and, and going into the show but you know you, you could tell by the way that mick foley was working he tried his ass off to get this over like every bump he took was just brutal it was hard as hell you know some of the ones that he took into the dumpster just oh, did make me cringe but he really did just came through himself all over the place just to really try and get over the brutality of it they did the spot you know the they backdropped um you know backdropped them from the ring into the dumpster which i just thought was crazy fair play to terry funk as well i mean god he 50s or whatever at that point older maybe but you know for him to, to even be doing this type of stuff was absolutely mental at this point of his career they all worked super hard like it was really stiff you know the the chair shots yeah he's it is it is it's definitely harder to watch today but i mean you know i definitely put down in my notes you don't see brawls like this anymore um you know the, the, this was very hard hitting i quite enjoyed the the backstage stuff again probably a little bit nostalgic for me because you know specifically you know specifically around about sort of 2000 2001 you'd see that a lot more and you don't see that today so and you know when i was younger a lot of my friends loved that type of stuff if they were, they were going to say to me you know go, go watch wrestling go watch the hardcore stuff and the 24 7 type stuff so for them that'd be a tick in the box the forklift thing i thought was kind of cool and a little interesting way of doing the finish yeah like i said this this was good i think they worked they worked harder than the match was good <laughs> if that makes any sense but yeah this was all right for me i I enjoyed this one. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't on the level of Terry Funk's 2000 WCW run, which was for me just really sad, like really, really sad. Just watching him take incredible kind of amount of punishment for no return whatsoever. And it it did it did work. I mean, the, 
in fairness, the angle that built this match for me was a brilliant slice of television. So it basically took up the first 40 minutes of the episode of Raw that it was on. They had a match between James Charlie and Cactus Jack. It was, I think, Falls Count Anywhere. They jumped off of something into a into a dumpster. It might have been the, the Titan Tron, in fact. They dumped, jumped off it into a dumpster. The lids came down. And then the New Age Outlaws ran out and pushed it off the stage in a like a, a really kind of dramatic moment. And for the next up, the match lasted maybe 10 minutes for the next half an hour there's like ambulance crews and everything trying to make sure they're okay there are even jerry lawler's like saying as the heel commentator like oh the, the new age outlaws went too far they've gone too far this this was genuine in life you know life-threatening they should never have done this they even have a couple of the heels do a promo where they're asked about it and they go yeah no you just it, you don't want to see that you don't want to see that they add like you know as i said officials around foley and funk for ages like making sure they're okay taking them off to the ambulance it was the exact opposite of the way AEW build their angles where basically the angle happens and they just race off to do something yeah. else this was let's dwell on it let's get people's reactions it was a really good visual let's just really milk it for everything it's worth and so that was really good but for me the execution of the match wasn't great but i guess i am looking at it now in hindsight and i think at the time it did stand out as something relatively different and and, and exciting um, and certainly this part of the product was definitely something that would become key again to wwe during the attitude era is you know this sort of hardcore or harder edged wrestling so before the undertaker came match which is next they first of all do the video which charts the story which we've already spoken about a little bit but it goes all the way back to paul bearer's first initial saying that the undertaker had a dark secret and it went through all the stuff at in your house bad blood where kane uh, arrives for the first time and then the, the bit where Hunter and kane seemed like they might have reunited prior to the rumble only for kane to then attack the undertaker and set the casket on fire which gave the undertaker a couple of weeks off before they really went into supernova with the build towards this match then howard finkel introduces pete rose to the audience we haven't discussed this which is probably quite a key part to kane's early wwe career in some ways rose comes out and cuts a promo on boston in general talks about the curse of the bambino famously the boston red sox didn't win the world series for something like you know 80 90 80 years or something after they they traded babe ruth to the yankees and this is what he's referring to here kane then arrives and hits pete rose with a tombstone a brutal looking tombstone and i'm going to say it right now at this period kane was a far better proponent of the tombstone than the undertaker kane's tombstones looked absolutely devastating the way he did it and then the crowd pop massively for it which is definitely against the grain of what they're going for but never mind that was my issue with it really is that i wonder whether you could have done this in a different way that the undertaker did it as the baby face because surely the idea was that you didn't want the hated you know the hated heel kane to be getting this baby face response so it was a bit weird but i guess the whole thing was just about like the dumpster thing it was very highlightable i suppose so you can imagine this being you know cut of this cut of the thing at the end cut of the guys going the dumpster and it's all like a 25 second highlight thing of it and i think that was what this was about was getting more you know more mainstream publicity on a night which was all about that for the wwf yeah and and it's worth saying as well pete rose is an extremely famous person mm. so he is one of the best baseball players of all time he is the all-time leader in hits games played at bats singles outs so like he's a massively successful player and yet not in the hall of fame because he famously was made permanently ineligible 
manageable because of the fact that he had bet on baseball games while still playing and then I believe also managing the Cincinnati Reds during his career so he was going into this a pantomime villain mm-hmm. and so they had to know this would be the reaction I mean they even set it up like he started to say dissing Red, the Red Sox and Boston more generally so yeah you're right that that part of it doesn't make any sense but it did it was quite a big deal I guess in terms of just mainstream attention here's Pete Rose appearing a guy who's basically persona non grata in terms of his own sport let's let's chuck him out there and get him tombstone by Kane and and it looked really good I thought yeah I, I agree with all you guys I just I, I think they should have had Taker do it myself as well, but never mind. Maybe this is, this is their way for making up for the fact Taker was going to win. It's going to win the match. Who knows? Then we got the video to hype the main event, including the confrontation between Austin and Tyson on Raw. Tyson joining DX, then the shenanigans of DX in the build-up to the show, all set to DX's music. Firstly, Mike Tyson is announced a special guest ring enforcer. Despite how you know strong and tough Mike Tyson is, he is accompanied by Pat Patterson and Tony Gurria to the ring as if he needs a couple of bodyguards. Then we get. Shawn Michaels and Austin come out and we have our match it goes for 20 minutes and it ends when Austin hits the stunner uh, but the referee is down but Mike Tyson jumps in the ring counts the three a little bit too fast and Austin becomes champion uh, I'm going to start with you Matt this time the, the the hype video and the you know the, the sort of overall hype surrounding this um, I found quite fascinating to, to start with because it was Austin Tyson Michaels now God knows we've talked about celebrity involvement and um, in wrestling and I've definitely had more than my faith you know fair share of things to say about it and I did make a point to when I was taking notes for this to put to even put something on the line notes I have moaned about this quite a bit but let's be realistic I can't hear because this was the you know I mean if you know if you're going to say Mr. T was the celebrity involvement in the the the, you know for the time that this was on that this was one of the most successful times that they'd ever done it so I I had no problem with it here the the match itself was it, it was do you know what? when you just said it was about 20 minutes I was actually quite surprised because I, I didn't think I was quite surprised it was that long um it was it was all right and I'm, I'm struggling to find any other sort of term of saying that it, that it was all right I mean I, I've definitely seen better from both I mean okay let's be fair you know Sean was certainly dealing with with his back injury at the time um and well if you know to believe half of the stories must have been pilled out of his mind to be able to to even work you know for as much as he did during this there were the things in there that they did though that really did make me cringe like I know he does his sort of backflip bump you know in, into the turnbuckles and that and just oh like th- they did that at one point and then it, just, it really did make me cringe so just thinking a guy with a back like that what the fuck are you doing that for well I think that was a botch really yeah so he tried the flip bump and he that that's what messed him up so oh. he, he tried the flip bump and he didn't hit it and he went straight he flipped straight into the turnbuckles which is not he would normally flip and get land on the top of the like crotch yeah. himself and he didn't do it so yeah i think that was a botch and that's what messed him up the re- after that he could barely bend down to, to kind of maneuver steve austin oh it was it was a bad thing i mean literally that yeah. just it almost took me out of it at one point which it, it was nasty and I, yeah i just felt like the the, the i don't want to say they went through the motions because probably you know that's not the right term of phrase but it just it was very basic and very there was nothing much to it you know th- throughout the rest of this I mean the, the finish was actually quite cool um, I, I thought the finish was actually alright you know counter for counter for counter was interesting the, the, Mike, the Mike Tyson fast count I mean obviously you know things worked out pretty okay for Stone Cold Steve Austin you know so <laughs> let's not 
you know, get get too upset over it. I think at the time I probably would have been a lot more pissed off um, than I am now. That, that, that did bug me a little bit, but you know, whatever. Like I said, it, it worked out fine for Steve Austin. He got his crowning achievement, and probably the, the one thing that I thought was really good, and, and I know we've talked about this before, Ben, is that particularly for the last match of the show, you want it to feel important and special, and they really did make this feel like the you know the, the crowning achievement. This was a big deal, you know, the confetti falling, you know, JR thing, you know, thanks for coming, everybody, and all that, and it felt like a big deal so this really ended on a good note and, and it did feel like they were crowning the next generational star so t- certainly ticking the right box so it ended the right way but like i said match wise th- th- they've both had better steven i can't even put into words what a big deal this was in 1998 and i remember i snuck downstairs i set my alarm to with about an hour to go so i got downstairs during the cane match even though i had to do my paper round about three hours after this uh this event ended and going back to the tyson Austin and stuff that was you know that was everywhere the next day in the uk that was on the big breakfast in, i can't remember how often their news segments but let's every 15 minutes and it was everyone at talk everyone at school was talking about it because you either were into wrestling which most people were then certainly the boys or you knew mike tyson was and like this was just an incredibly big deal and i uh, going through some of this i loved how tyson called michael's heartbreak during the pre-video austin still had his first version of his music which i thought was slightly better than the later one because it was a little bit more understated of a slightly different glass break um, and I can honestly say if it wasn't for Steve Austin I, just, I wouldn't be on this podcast right now and I think my wrestling watching would have ended years ago I might have some sort of fringe interest but I loved it I loved him straight up loved this guy and he reinvigorated my love for this sport and I've never really looked back from you know the summer of 97 when he, he for me became sort of a big deal and I just kept thinking while I was watching it you know what a time to be alive and watching wrestling when this was this stratospheric babyface was on the rise going into the match Tyson gave Austin a really extreme wedge throwing him back in the ring which I suspect probably stung for days the finish you, you, you touched on Matt was so good and I remember this finish because me and my friends used to recreate this at parties I just think now what a pair of idiots we would have done but we'd be in like the, the main room at a party and you do the try the super kick spin him round stunner pin we do it everywhere even I remember one summer one of my friends hired a bouncy castle for the whole summer so we'd do we'd be round there this was in between A levels and six for, uh, A levels and university for all them and I was going to start work but we'd be round there every day beers we'd do some work pro wrestling we'd run this finish we'd have some real matches that I would always lose and we'd cap <laughs> the day off with Big Brother 1 was there in during that time so wow. at 10 o'clock every night we'd watch Big Brother 1 but yeah this this was exactly what it needed to be in terms of a finish I didn't mind the Tyson turn at the end. I can I can understand completely why they did that. Guy with a bad reputation, let's get him cheered at the end. I think, my, you know, as you touch on my, uh, Matt, Michaels was messed up here. So I'm sure it was quite an effort for him to even deliver this. Uh, and when Ross said Austin's eight-year journey has been culminated, I could feel the tear ducts rippling a bit. But I managed to keep myself in check. And this was just such, such a moment in, in time. It really was, as you said, the crowning of a generational star, perhaps the biggest star they've ever had. I think in terms of how over he was in his crowd reactions, yeah. Yes, but obviously the longevity didn't have like Hogan did. But yeah, what a moment this was. Yes, massive moment, massively important moment to the point where there's 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 again a legend or a myth from the time that basically the Undertaker was stood backstage to prevent Shawn Michaels from getting out of doing the job because obviously we documented that quite a lot. Shawn Michaels was notorious for not doing the job, and I mean I shouldn't imagine on game day he'd turn around and not do it, but who knows? It's Shawn Michaels. He, he was unpredictable for a lot of the time. So yeah. 
massively important for the for the company, massively important for Austin. Yeah, every, everything was building to this. I'll, what I'll do before I go into too much about this, I will give you the old WWE's 35 years of WrestleMania take. Yes, love it. Because <laughs> there's a couple of things about this. Obviously, this is the main focus of the WrestleMania 14 entry. Starts off, and again, you might you might see a pattern here of the fact that it's a WWE made book. The world of sports entertainment was in the midst of a revolution. WWE was in an ongoing battle for fans with WCW. In the years since WrestleMania 13, WWE had seen the formation and dissolution of the New Heart Foundation, the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin, the emergence of the cocky bad guy The Rock, the birth of Degeneration X, and the most infamous moment in the history of WWE, the Montreal Screwjob. WWE was looking to launch a new period in their history, and to do so, they wanted to bring in former heavyweight boxing champion and baddest man on the planet, Mike Tyson. At the time, Tyson had his share of legal problems. He was serving a Nevada State Athletic Commission suspension for biting off a portion of Evander Holyfield's right ear during a boxing match. Some within the company were concerned that the cost to sign Tyson would preclude WrestleMania from becoming a financial success. Advisors told Vince that without Tyson, WWE could do four to 500,000 pay-per-view buys and make money. With Tyson, the company would get 700,000 buys and lose money. Vince told them, don't you understand? I'd rather lose money on 800,000 buys than make money on 400,000. That's how we grow the business. So Vince, very much the absolute genius once again being positioned here by the book. The other entry for this is the actual match itself, which is talking about the man who wrote the forward for this book, which is Mr. WrestleMania, Shawn Michaels. Heading into WrestleMania, Shawn Michaels was in excruciating pain, landing on a casket at the 1998 Royal Rumble, crushed one of his spinal discs and herniated two others. In the months leading into WrestleMania, Michael appeared only on Raw and at promotional events and there was some concern over whether or not he would perform at Wrestlemania. Steve Austin remembers things were heating up heading into Wrestlemania at the time. Sean was pretty temperamental. It was hot or cold. His back was bothering him and I don't think he was in a good place mentally. We didn't even know if he was going to get into the ring. Despite his best efforts to conceal his injury, agonizing pain was written all over Sean Michaels' face. Controversial and brash, Michaels was a proud WWE superstar. His insistence on going through the match was a tribute to his courage as a performer so yeah you can see who uh, wwe are very much kind of bigging up in that in those sentences there yeah three cheers for sean <laughs> it's it's all right it's not a great match i mean i think ultimately the quality of the match is spelled out by the fact that i gave the mixed tag team match my match of the night this should not this should have been the match of the night but it wasn't possible due to michael's injury and i would argue also probably still due to austin's injury because it's not that long before this since he suffered his neck injury that ultimately would retire him not that long late you know a couple of years later on so he's probably also still coming to terms with it it does what it had to do though which was give steve austin the title i know what you mean in terms of obviously aligning austin with tyson meant that you could have the visual at the end where tyson adds to austin's kind of overall pop but it doesn't make any sense let's be clear it doesn't make no, it doesn't really blind bit of sense yeah. in the scheme of the of the story and look michaels is clearly in pain in this match and and he he did at least do the job which was the bare minimum he could do given everything that had happened in the past and in truth wwe absolutely desperately needed him to do the job here there was nothing else that they could do if they had not been able to present this main event i do not know what they would have have done because Steve Austin had to go over the champion and had to go over the recognized top star in the company at the time in order to take that place. 
this was such a big deal at the time that even though I didn't have Sky and wasn't able to watch it, I did have the poster for the show on my wall for about two years after the show had happened. It was such a big deal at the time. It was so important. Now, that's not to say it was the biggest match of all time, although it was a significant step up on the previous year's buy rate for WrestleMania. So WrestleMania 13 had 237,000 buys. WrestleMania 14, 730,000. And just to put into context the turnaround there as well, in 1997, WrestleMania was outdrawn by the Rumble and Survivor Series that year and nearly outdrawn by SummerSlam 2. It was an all-time low WrestleMania buy rate and they turned it around to the tune of 500,000 buys in a year. And that is testament to how popular Austin already was. Testament also, though, to how popular wrestling was becoming because WWE were still beating WWE in the ratings war. They still had more people on a weekly basis tuning in to their product. So that gives you some idea as to the popularity of Austin and I'll leave my kind of overall review for the show in a bit because I wanted to come back to what I said earlier on which was that alternative history or the 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 road not traveled because we've been doing this a lot through the WrestleMania series and genuinely there is no alternative card to this this show there's absolutely none that you couldn't formulate a different card but what I was interested in is we talked about Bret Hart and what might have happened in his career now what would he have done at WrestleMania 14 if he'd have stayed with WWE because I have no idea maybe Ken Shamrock might have been his his opponent that might have worked especially given what had happened the year before but he doesn't seem to fit in this WWE to the point where it almost this is why I always think the Attitude Era begins at the Montreal Screwjob because after it Brett does no longer fit in this company well I think actually the main event would have been Brett Hart and Steve Austin I think if Brett had still been there so I think I think Brett stays heel I mean obviously you've got to fiddle around a little bit with the uh, the end of 97 because Brett we've talked about this on one of the other shows Brett was starting to get cheered a bit in certain cities, but obviously he was in that tough, tough spot. But I think that would have been it. I think, and I think that may well have been talked about. I think in that because obviously if you if you think I know that wouldn't have been a new match like Austin and Michaels, but Austin hadn't beaten Brett, had he? So he'd lost the two big. Uh, well, I can't remember what they did on that April '97 pay per view, but he certainly lost the big what the big ones. So I think that's probably where you get to. And Michaels would either have been. I mean, maybe Michaels actually isn't on the card because his back his back's hurt. So yeah, I don't know. But then there's a there's a lot there's a lot that changes. If you're assuming that Michaels is in the main event, then I think Shamrock is where Bret Hart is. I think, but I think it'd be the other way around. I, I mean, I, the only reason I question that is that, as you said, they've had the matches of viruses, they've had the match at WrestleMania, they've had the match in your house after WrestleMania, they've had the Canadian Stampede. Like he's Bret and Austin's played out surely by this point. Yeah, but sure he hasn't beaten him, has he? Is the only thing I think. But yeah, I mean, that, there's that, there is that. But I just yeah. don't know. I feel like that's something he would have done afterwards to get that win yeah, back. Perhaps. You know I mean? It's just such a difficult because there's so many. Do you do Sean and Brett if Brett's staying? I, I, I don't know, really. I, I think that it's such a difficult one. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I agree that the Michaels match is a newer match. I suppose they didn't know that Brett wasn't staying at SummerSlam. So you still probably do the booking in there. And Michaels is a heel. So I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's really tricky. It's really yeah. tricky. And I don't know. And I just as I said, I just don't feel like legitimately after Survivor Series 97, I can picture Brett in the WWE no. anymore. It just it, forget what happened there. It's more about the just style of the product at this point. Yeah. Just Raw during '98 and '99 is unmissable, but has the lowest hit rate for good matches of any years on Raw ever. Yeah. Like it just there just are not classic matches. There are no really good matches on Raw during those years. Great moments, great storytelling, but no good matches. And as good as Brett was in other respects as well, and storyline wise, he would have wanted to be wrestling. He would have wanted matches that were longer than four or five minutes, which is what most of the Raw matches were at the time. 
okay that is about everything on the show so it's time for our summary our view our mvps if we haven't given them and matches of the night if we haven't given them and score out of 10 Stephen, i'm going to start with you i think this is entertaining from start to finish and this is this is one of the most important shows in wf history if you, if you think maybe wrestlemania one's the most important this has got to be top three i think in terms of importance so matt what do you think in terms of are you just shaking your head because you hate wrestlemania one wrestlemania was just garbage oh no no i'm <laughs> saying importance i mean in terms of importance for the company I, I think this has got I mean this might be the second most important show in company history because they are behind WCW uh, and this set up them beating Nitro for the first time I think in April 98 for 83 weeks so you know everything not I wouldn't say everything that WF has done or WWE has done after this is based upon this show but without this show is Steve Austin as big of a star without Tartan's involvement without everything and, and you know this is you can't overstate how important this was and I'm giving this a 7 out of 10 and my MVP is Stone Cold Steve Austin. Matt, what do you think? I'm just expecting him to go higher there then, Stephen. Uh, <laughs> I've given my match of the night already. Ken, Ken Chamrock and The Rock absolutely adored that. That was great. My MVP of the match, I, I think it's hard not to give it to Stone Cold Steve Austin. Um, he, you know, as this show went off the air, he was the man and very much was the man for many, 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 many years after that. So definitely with him. As for the overall number of the show, it was it was definitely good. Um, I think most of the matches, I think it's, it's different to a lot of the other wrestling because most of the matches were, were maybe not necessarily you know good to great but they were definitely all at least good so I, i'm probably leaning towards a six six out of ten for that i think yeah i'm going for six based solely on the fact that i just don't think the main event really is that impressive as a as a and this is difficult because i also want to say this i've given it a six out of ten and yet i would say this is the best wrestlemania of all time in terms of wwe achieving what it sets out to achieve with it like steve austin does become the biggest star in the company out of this out of this show there are not many times and it is hard to do but there are not many times when wwe catches the big babyface star just at the right moment when the popularity is at that sort of event horizon level almost and then manages to turn them into an, a massively even bigger star than that just by doing one show and that's exactly what they accomplished here i can't think actually of a match which launched a wrestler better than this because given he was already hugely popular already drawing really big audiences on television for his segments they were getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then they did this and it just went supernova as a consequence of it and they planned for that and they've been planning this whole show for a long time undertaker and kane's been going since the previous previous summer i think before SummerSlam, bearer first brought up yeah you know that there's a there's a secret in the undertaker's history so they've been building this for so long and they got it spot on in terms of the story in terms of the build in terms of even the match as i said the best match they've ever had against one another this is was really massively like invested by the crowd and then the rest of it again it gives you a good picture of what wwe is in 1998 shows you what they're doing and they're doing things that are a little bit different you wouldn't have seen this in wrestlemania's before because this is a new wwe with a a new attitude new way of presenting pro wrestling that that they haven't done before it is heavily influenced by ecw but because it curtails some of the excesses is a far more accessible product than ecw ever was and is just very enjoyable start to finish not a great wrestling show but that's the definition of what wwe was during the attitude era not a great wrestling show but fun start to finish you were you would always enjoy their shows and as i say that turnaround of pay-per-view buy rate is phenomenal 500,000 they've never i don't believe they've ever turned around the number as 
in terms of a percentage as well as they did from WrestleMania 13 to WrestleMania 14. And a huge part of that is the Tyson tie-in. I believe the, the reports at the time was that Tyson was paid $4 million to do the handful of appearances that he did in the build-up to this and then slap the mat three times overly fast to give Austin the victory. But he was worth it. Ultimately, was absolutely worth it because after this, WWE, as you said, about a month later, won the first round of the Monday Night Rate War for 83 weeks. They would then trade the advantage back and forth for WCW over the rest of 98. And then in, into 99, they just went even bigger and got even even more like impressive television ratings. But it's all led back to this show. I agree with you, Stephen. It is the most important wrestling show, certainly since WrestleMania 1 possibly even more important because i just i think it goes back to that thing about what would have happened if having ditched bret hart then michaels gets injured and he can't wrestle in this match what do they do then i've no idea what they do if that no. happens and it would not have been that perfect moment that austin got to send him supernova he's still been really popular but it wouldn't have gone bang in the way that it did in my view straight after the show had they not been able to have michaels put him over and create that perfect moment of the babyface austin defeating the heel Shawn michaels in the main event for the title for his first title in the biggest match of the year so six out of ten but arguably the best wrestlemania in terms of just achieving what you set out to achieve and ultimately in terms of what this is all about you know we are viewing these shows and rating them based on their artistic merit but for me wrestling is about more than that it's about the commercial merit as well and the commercial merit absolutely is perfection on this show it's massive and incredible so i'm the same as you um steven mixed tags best match of the night in austin is the MVP for me and how could you have anybody but Austin as the MVP obviously he's the MVP this is his his night right then that's about everything for another week I haven't actually I will quickly just try and figure out where that puts this show in terms of the other Wrestlemanias because uh, obviously you know that's what we're all about in the moment cage match gives this show a 6.83 rating um so pretty close to us we give it a 6.33 average and it is currently the fifth best no Mm -hmm. the third best wrestling sorry i was including stuff we haven't covered in this run behind only 10 and 3 okay yeah yeah and it's above everything else so yeah not not bad at the moment not a bad placing for wrestlemania 14 so what's left me to to do today is to say thank you very much for joining us matt roberts gentlemen pleasure as always got the uh, salute at the end there for our uh, listeners and Stephen. Thank you for your contributions as well. I'm so tempted to do the noise, but I'm not going to. I've been a bit of blast as always, gentlemen, so thank you. Uh, we'll be back again in two weeks with WrestleMania 50. But until then, take care. Break it down! You can tell me what to do You know who you're talking to